This episode of the Ed Curation Podcast is sponsored by Spring Math, a complete student math intervention solution that equips teachers to lead highly efficient class-wide and individual interventions to lift all students and build enduring math mastery. Spring Math has been recognized by many trusted industry sources like ISTE, Tech and Learning, EdTech Digest, and THE Journal. Build teacher confidence, accelerate student achievement with Spring Math. You're listening to the Ed Curation Podcast. We bring you stories from educational leaders about the instructional resources, practices, and movements that are reshaping learning. I've had at least 15 students who have increased more than four grade levels. He used theater as a tool to make great human beings. My expectations are high for all of them. One of the things that I really love about teaching is the fact that every day is sort of unique and different and strange. to train in the 90s when people in my field, which is school psychology, were beginning to say, wait a minute, maybe just identifying children with disabilities and making them eligible for special education is really not benefiting overall literacy rates or closing opportunity or equity gaps for children. And we knew all of that to be true. And maybe there's a smarter way to look for problems before their crisis level and provide early intervention in highly effective ways. And maybe even, which this has become a reality in my lifetime, prevent the need to ever make a diagnosis of a learning disability. Hi, everyone. This is your host, Christy Hemingway. And our guest today is Dr. Amanda Vander Hayden. Dr. Vander Hayden is a policy advisor and thought leader who actively conducts research focused on improving learning outcomes for students. In addition to publishing nine books and over a hundred scholarly articles and chapters, she regularly delivers webinar, panel, and keynote sessions, including addresses to state departments of education in 35 states, Singapore, and China. And now she's here on the Ed Curation Podcast. Dr. Vander Hayden has authored a number of policy guides and position statements, and she's credited with developing models of academic screening that are widely used in schools. She was deeply involved in some of the early models of what we now call response to intervention, RTI, which has now been mostly absorbed into what we're calling MTSS, multi-tiered systems of support. She's funneled all of her research and expertise into an amazing tool called Spring Math. So as curators of evidence-based resources, we of course wanted to hear more. I built a pretty extensive um, screening model, and I ended up going from a faculty job to a school district in Arizona, and I sort of did my screening thing there, and this was really kind of novel. Nobody knew about, in this district, knew about CBM or functional assessment or any of that, and discovered a math problem. And this was the first year that accountability tests had ever occurred. So I went to the, you know, went to the meeting. I'm on the leadership team working for this district. And I said, well, we have a math problem. And they said, huh, that's what the year end test said, <laughs> which, you know, which was a threatening place for them to be because that had always been sort of hidden from them. And they said, but you know, it jives. We sort of knew we had this problem. Just to recap, Amanda built this screening tool that identified a district-wide problem in math. And she and her team realized that to address this, they would need a comprehensive intervention. 
that could be implemented across the district at all grade bands. The class-wide intervention that she created equips teachers to lead highly efficient class-wide math interventions using intentional paired learning. I was really building that while we flew. And a number of important outcomes occurred over those three years. Within the first year, learning disabilities went from 6% of their population to 3.5%. They went from middle of the pack in math achievement to rank order position one. And by the time we had finished our multiple baseline across schools, fading it, which is a wonderful way for systems to implement change and evaluate the effects of it as they go. It was not uncommon for us to see a 20% increase in percent proficient on the year-end test when we entered a school in a single year. But by the end of all the three-year project, all schools were above 95% proficient in math. The system that Dr. Vander Hayden created got lots of attention and accolades, and that school district in Arizona continued to use it, even though Amanda moved on to do other things. And one of the things was to continue to build additional applications and functionality to that original system. The automation of the decision rules, the provision of them just in time when you need the materials, we give them to you. The coach dashboard, which is tracking in live time how interventions working or not working. And even saying, go visit this teacher. This teacher needs some in-class coaching support. Amanda named this new expanded and improved system Spring Math. And because they were already using the assessment piece, she offered the whole program to her original district in Arizona. They got a huge gain in the first year, which was really cool for me to see, because what that said is even veteran sites, already very high achieving, already dialed in with response to intervention and multi-tiered systems of support, benefited from this technology tool, which is really designed to automate and do a lot of the heavy lifting to, in effect, enable better teaching. To clarify, Spring Math is not a comprehensive math curriculum, but rather a comprehensive MTSS tool that is curriculum agnostic or curriculum neutral pairing effectively with whatever math program you are currently using. We can be layered onto any core math curriculum and we can ensure a level of safety among your decision teams, your leaders, that you are going to get children to levels of proficiency that they need to be in math. Okay. And that's important because most core curricula in math are terrible. It's true. And so this can be paired with whatever program you're using, and it's tier one, tier two, tier three interventions. Comprehensive. When you have a lot of kids at risk in your system, you can't really figure out who really needs individual intervention or even small group intervention. And the way you account for that or make it clear who needs individual intervention or small group intervention is to conduct something like class-wide intervention. It's unavoidable. Explain what a class-wide intervention actually entails. What does that look like? Yeah, so, you know, it's important 
like to say that it's not my idea. The first person really that I'm aware of who worked this out was Charlie Greenwood. And that would have been, gosh, in the 70s and 80s. And he, uh, and even in 91 is my favorite publication of his, where he tracked kids over two years and he had these wonderful, this is pre-RCTs. He is a methodological, brilliant um, researcher. Um, But anyway, Charlie Greenwood, he uh, had these three groups and he had a group that he targeted with what he called class-wide peer tutoring. And then he had a comparison group. I can't remember all the layers, but he had two levels of comparison and he deliberately populated his um, intervention group with children who would normally have, you know, greater risk. They, they were um, eligible for free and reduced lunch and, and um, things like that. And so he delivered a high dosage of opportunities to respond by having children work in pairs on instructional level tasks. And he did this in math and in reading. And what he demonstrated is that he measured opportunities to respond and demonstrated that, in fact, children who were participating in the class-wide peer tutoring model got more opportunities to respond, which there's an operational definition for that. And then, in fact, it was linked to higher achievement. And in fact, he one of his comparison groups was a group of children who were high achieving at baseline, and he closed the gap between the, ch- the children who needed some intervention and children who clearly did not need intervention in that system over two years. So, and he did it in a methodologically rigorous way so that you could know really that was about that active ingredient, high dosage of opportunities to respond. So our, our model is not identical to, to Charlie Greenwood's model, but that was, that was the original sort of inspiration for me. What Spring Math essentially provides is a tool that fills gaps, missing pieces, and cracks in existing curriculums, systems, and pedagogy. It's a little bit like magic. People in MTSS have said, some of my colleagues and friends will say, you can't intervene your way out of a core problem. And that's become almost like a refrain. But you also can't just sit back and wait for it to solve itself. And so I think a lot of systems, when they screen and they find that, you know, they have lots of children at risk, which probably they would have known even before they screened based on urine test scores and the like, then there becomes this long process of of trying to, you know, adopt new curricula and engage in professional development. And all that is important, but that is a long game activity. And you might not see the fruits of that effort for two or three years. It's not uncommon when schools adopt a new core curriculum for their test scores to actually go down in the next year. And, and that sort of makes the sense if you think about it, because teachers are being asked to stop with the old and learn to deliver a new program. And there's some um, time that's just required for them to master that. So to me, I think that's that old refrain of you can't intervene your way out of a core, pro- core problem has been overplayed. That's yesterday's advice. And really, when, when you discover that you have systemic risk, you should install a supplement like class-wide intervention in reading, writing, or math in order to catch kids up rapidly, identify who needs more intensive intervention, which is always our charge. We can't just not identify children who might need special education. And then also simultaneously run your long game of shoring up your core curriculum. But it's not an either or and wait it out. That that does not work. Right. Would you say that what you created could be a template for other content areas as well? 
Oh, for sure. I mean, you know, the, so it has been. Um, so, so Charlie Greenwood did his work in both reading and math. I, I'm not, he might have even done it with some spelling. I, it's possible. Um, and then Len Fuchs and Doug Fuchs built a model called PALS, Pure Assisted Learning Strategies, and that is available for reading and for math. And they did that work, you know, really in the, the 90s, I would say. And um, and then, of course, our model, which uh, we built also around 2000, between 2000 to 2003-ish, is specific to math because I felt like the PALS model for reading was pretty good. There were other tools out there and I knew we were sort of desperate for math and in a more rigorous approach to math. And then after that, a colleague of mine who collaborated on research with me in that little district in Arizona, Matt Burns, built class-wide reading intervention for the center at the University of Minnesota that's called the Press Center for Literacy. And it has been enormously successful. I want to go a little broad right now. You've spent decades helping schools and school systems become more effective through the use of data, not just in math, but in all areas. And this kind of buzz phrase of data-driven instruction is really popular right now. A lot of people are Mm -hmm. talking about it. They're not necessarily meaning the same thing when they talk about it. So can you help us get smarter? What exactly does data-driven instruction look like? What does it entail? Yeah, you know, this is this is suddenly a hot topic again. Uh, is, I mean, we've been pushing this work and doing this work really since curriculum-based measurement came to be, which would have been, you know, 1977 forward. So it's not, again, not new work for sure. But what really has emerged over time is a very sophisticated process of decision-making with data. The reason I said it's a hot topic again is Timothy Shanahan wrote about this and quoted many of my colleagues as saying that, you know, really this this is too difficult for teachers to keep up with, with, you know, 30 students in a class and to always be expected to be harvesting their own data and then taking the correct action based on what those data tell you. That That is something that I think that's the space for ed tech to intervene Amanda and her team have done just that with the creation of Spring Math. You can find and connect with Spring Math at edcuration.com. We're privileged today to be speaking with Spring Math's creator to help you learn more about the research base and outcomes of this amazing edtech resource. Here's Dr. Vander Hayden again. We take what is a very complex system of skill development from numeracy to algebra And we make it easy for the teacher to take the action that needs to be taken. We say, this is the recommended action and click here to get started. And when they click there, everything they need to take that action is provided within the tool. So if we, for example, to make this concrete, when a teacher is ready to screen the class in math, those materials are provided. If it's the first time the teacher has ever done screening, we know that. And we have a little pop-up video that overviews how to do it. We've simplified that process so that teachers can use an answer key and score answers correct. And we use paper and pencil with children because it is superior period in math. And the teacher spends about 15 minutes scoring and entering the scores into the interface. And then instantly, the teacher gets a summary graph of child performance. We're identifying and we're interpreting the data. So we're saying to the teacher, it looks like you're, you've got a class-wide problem. We recommend a class-wide intervention start here. And when they click that little 
button to get started. Then they're provided with the what we call a protocol, but you could call it a recipe to conduct class-wide intervention with all the practice materials contained that the students will need to do that intervention. And when the teacher enters the score at the end of the week for students, it automatically graphs, interprets the data, advances the task difficulty within the tool, and provides new materials to the teacher. I'm thinking of all the professional learning hours and all the systems that we tried to put in place at the different schools where I taught over the years. And Amanda's right. We as teachers struggled to be successful because it was just too much to manage. And the systems were all dependent on us doing all the tracking, analysis, and response and spending the time to become proficient with the system, which is a whole job all by itself. One of the things that most impressed us here at Ed Curation about Spring Math is that the feedback and support doesn't stop with student data in the classroom, but populates to a coach dashboard to ensure teacher support. That's telling our coach dashboard how well, how consistently intervention is occurring in classrooms in the school and what kind of growth it's producing for students. And we will say... We recommend that you go and check in with this teacher um, because it's not going well in this class, right? The teacher also is getting that growth feedback every single week. And when we identify behind the scenes who needs individual intervention, within about, we require about four weeks of use before we apply the rule. But after the first four weeks, then the rule just applies automatically as you go. And when we identify a child for individual intervention, we bring that to the teacher's attention right inside the coach dash, the teacher dashboard and say, click here to get started again. And the diagnostic process is automated within the tool. And then it takes the teacher to an intervention packet for the week. And that intervention packet contains all of the scripted instructions to deliver the intervention including bold-faced words that we really want the teacher to use and say, all the scripted activities to build conceptual understanding and procedural skill-building activities for the skill that we're targeting. And then each week, teacher again comes to the computer simply to enter a score for that child. And the system will graph the performance, interpret the data, advance the difficulty, provide new materials to the teacher. Shanahan wrote about this and he quoted... Len Fuchs and Sharon Vaughn, I believe, is is saying that this is really just, it's too hard for teachers to sustain that continuous cycle of data interpretation. And I really agree with them. That's the way I feel about it, too. I think we can train teachers to do it. We've been trying to do that for 30 years. But But like everything, it falls apart. You know, when you get busy or you get distracted or you miss the data point or, you know, you miss recording a score and you can get lost in it. And that's why we don't see the return that we know is possible, because when we do it in research, we get big effects. What we need are tools that have those capabilities embedded or that do them for us because teachers are not researchers. Right. Yeah. And the cadence is actually quite tight, like it's weekly. You have to have at least weekly data parsing and and meaning, you know, because this is what we find in in research is teachers are great about collecting the data. Mm -hmm. Where it falls apart is taking the correct timely instructional action based on this data. So interpreting the data and then knowing how to respond to the data in a timely manner is essential. Right. Absolutely. It's a weekly effort. 
And the thing is, you know, there are tools out there that have attempted to solve this problem by taking over the instruction. So then everything is turned over to the computer, right? Mm-hmm. The, the student logs in, they receive all of their instruction through the computer, and the computer claims to be, quote unquote, personalizing their instruction by adjusting what they get based on how they perform. Those are overwhelmingly not impressive in their effects on student learning, which is very interesting to me. Well, very well-funded tools, very popular tools that actually their data are kind of abysmal. And some of this to me, the way I think about it, I just think that the teacher is the center of the universe in terms of an, an effect on student learning. So when you take the teacher out of the equation and you turn that over to the computer, you lose something that's really, really important as an active ingredient. So when when we built our tool, I got a little pushback from my partners because they wanted to do more automation. They wanted to do the assessment online and they they said, this is what customers will want. And I said, I've spent 20 years figuring out how to give schools not what they ask for, but what they need. Most of my career has been getting systems to do what they need to do. What will work for children, which is not necessarily what they thought, not necessarily what they would have asked for, right? What I know that we all really want to know is how do we turn math haters and math fearers into confident high achievers? That is an easy answer. Oh, good. Yeah, it's interesting, though, because I think math teachers, math education has somewhat lost its way in some of its philosophies. And one philosophy to me that I think is actually pretty harmful in math education is this notion that if you develop, you know, a really engaging, interesting lesson, clever lesson um, that maybe you know, emphasizes uh, productive struggle or an inquiry-based learning approach versus more of an explicit instruction approach, that you'll somehow get deeper learning and better student engagement. And that is not only an untested, you know, unfounded statement that has not been demonstrated to be the case in research. It also would not be predicted to be the case based on the way people learn, the science of learning. What would be predicted is that children would experience more anxiety, less engagement, because they don't have the necessary prerequisite fundamental facility of skills to be able to profit from that type of instructional opportunity, right? So I think in math ed, you know, you've, you've almost got math educators who really are talking to other, to other math educators and saying this is a really cool way to teach this understanding, completely divorced from whether or not it actually works for students. That's the part that is being lost. So when you use something that maybe doesn't look so sexy, like explicit instruction, mm-hmm. students are highly engaged, actively responding experiencing low error rates. They do not experience anxiety and it's very, very, very efficient. So I believe the way you really help children become rock star mathematicians, you help them do the math. You help them do the math and you stop putting your philosophies in their way about, well, this is too boring. This is too direct. 
if I give a worked example, then somehow I'm, I'm preventing this child from actually having a deep learning opportunity when they discover the solution themselves. That is not true. That is not the way math learning occurs. And if you love doing that kind of stuff, if you love building those clever lessons and using more of an inquiry-based approach, use it as a generalization strategy in your classroom, not as an acquisition instructional strategy. And please, please do not avoid fluency building in procedural skill because fluency building in procedural skill in concert with excellent conceptual understanding instruction, meaning teaching on a number line, solving for an unknown, creating equivalent quantities, not meaning that you introduce productive struggle, but those two things produce the best learning. We know this for, for, for certain. It's so interesting. Now that I'm later in my own career, Amanda, to listen to you talk about this, because I remember when I went through my teacher training, we were in that phase of philosophy where we were eliminating all competition. Mm -hmm. We were lowering the bars all over the place because our big focus was on self-esteem. We had to build these kids' confidence. And then we realized, oh, hey, that didn't work at all. First Mm -hmm. of all, kids aren't stupid. They They know that there's a winner. Right. They they know that they know that some kids are, you know, that they catch on faster than others and that they're better at things than other kids. And then we then we discovered, you know, or we realized again that the way to really give kids self-esteem and build their confidence is by challenging them and then equipping them to meet the challenge. Right. And we started talking about productive struggle and there was a lot of misunderstanding around that. And people started just throwing kids in on the deep end. And we've, we always come back to, I think that good teaching is good teaching. It's got to be explicit. It's got to include modeling. It's got to be responsive to feedback, you know, all of those things. That's right. Why do we have to do that dance? Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, over again, I don't know. The the math anxiety literature is absolutely the clearest on this point, which is that in terms of math anxiety, it's inseparable from weak skill. So weak skill precedes and is associated with greater math anxiety and greater math anxiety is associated with weaker skill. And it is a bi-directional feed. Which they have anxiety because they don't know how to do it. That's right. Yeah, and you know, you can't you can't mitigate anxiety. You don't solve an anxiety problem by avoiding challenging math content because all you will do is worsen skill development, which is associated with greater math anxiety. Yeah. So it's just an illogical approach to think that you can help children feel more confident distinct from actually improving their learning. You can find Spring Math through the links in the episode notes or by going to edcuration.com. Dot com and searching Spring Math. Renee Lepley, principal of North Star Central Elementary School in Pennsylvania, said, Because Spring Math is data-driven, it tells us exactly what we need to do to set our students up for success. It takes the guesswork out of what we should be doing and creates a clear path forward on both a classroom and an individual level. And Amy Hodgson, retired superintendent of the Danville Schools in Michigan, said, With Spring Math, teachers are able to identify issues, are given the right resources to address them, and can see skills build year after year. This will give children a significant advantage in life, which is what we all want. Log in to edcuration.com to learn more, find additional resources to fit your and your students' needs, and access our free professional learning explorations, our blog, 
and all of our previous podcast episodes. We appreciate you taking the time to listen and learn with us today. And if you found this episode helpful, we'd also appreciate a star rating and a review. And we hope you'll join us again next week on the Ed Curation Podcast, where we're reshaping learning.